Turn with me to the book of Jonah, chapter 4. Lord willing, today we'll finish the book. That's the plan. We'll see. Um, but that was our plan anyway. And I, and I will say this, uh, that this is a very rich text. This is a very rich text. Now, if you know anything about me, you know that I can't cook at all. I can't even boil water. If you told me that I didn't know how to use a microwave, I would probably agree with you. Uh, there's a famous story of one time I thought I didn't know how to use a microwave, and it turned out the microwave was broken, thankfully. Uh, but only when students informed me of that that I actually had relief. So I know nothing of cooking. So what the analogy I'm about to use is purely from the educational means of television, which always tells us the truth. But on these cooking shows, sometimes they say that, that there is sometimes an ingredient, a, a, a dish, a meat, or a vegetable, I think often it's a meat, that is often just so good by itself, all you have to do is follow the exact instructions, and it's perfect. It's perfect. Some kind of steak, some kind of... I, again, I don't know what I'm talking about. But all you have to do is just serve this up, You don't have to interfere with it whatsoever. You don't need to be creative or anything like that. You just serve it, and it's perfect. That is this text. If we just walk through this text carefully and systematically, there is so much rich truth. The the goal needs to be to get the speaker out of it and just to see all that is going on, to slow down carefully through the text and to understand what is taking place. That, (coughs) excuse me, is what is going on there. So, in light of that, uh, this is a very, very rich text. And how do we approach it? How do we approach it? Well, a way to think about this text, a way to introduce it, is to ask the question, how much do we appreciate grace? That's the question. How much do we appreciate grace? We talk about grace all the time. We speak of it. We say, by God's grace. Oh, I need grace. Oh, this is only by his grace. We talk about, oh, this is, if I don't have grace, were it not for grace? We say the word over and over and over. I understand that. In fact, at our church here, we say it a lot because it's the name of our church. And it's the name of affiliated ministries. It's grace to you. We say grace all the time. And sometimes when we use a word over and over and over, familiarity breeds contempt. It just lessens the power. Do we understand our need for grace? Do we comprehend our dependence on grace? Do we understand how far it goes and what it encompasses and entails? This is a problem. Sometimes we reflect on grace this way. You're having a rough time, and somebody says, how are you doing? And you say the words, better than I deserve. Oh, we know that phrase. And of course, that reflects 
We need grace, and we know what grace means. But sometimes when we say that, that's just our godly way, our godly appearance of saying, I'm really doing bad, and I'm really struggling to have a good attitude about it. Please don't bother me about this anymore. And that's all we mean. Here's the question. How much do we appreciate grace? How much do we understand our dependence on it? How much do we understand how far it goes? How much do we really grasp what it would demand and change our lives because of the nature of grace in all that it does? How do grace, or put it differently, do we underestimate it? Do we underestimate it? And what happens at the end of the book of Jonah is that God must help Jonah come to grips with how much he understands grace. That's the question. And it will be a concentrated and condensed lesson about the nature and the ramifications of grace. It's the climax of the book. And like I said, it's a rich text. So we all need to understand and pray that the speaker does not impede on the message. This is about understanding and coming to grips with the full consequences of the nature of grace. And like I said, by way of context, all of the book of Jonah has been working to this point because all of the book of Jonah, in essence, it's about grace. From the very first words uttered by God, In Jonah chapter 1, you know it's about grace because he tells Jonah to go. This is the initiating act of grace. This is God taking the initiative. It wasn't the Ninevites who sent an invite to God to send a prophet over. No, it is God who went. It is God who started. It is God who began. That's the nature of grace. And it is God who goes and sends somebody to a place which doesn't deserve it. That's grace. That's grace. And that's the lesson that, in essence, is carried throughout the book of Jonah. It is the nature of God's grace, sometimes carried out immediately by contrast. Because then you have Jonah, if you remember, who is anything but gracious, is anything but what God's grace would demand. He runs away. And if you remember, he even attempts to hire an entire boat to get him out of the trajectory of God's plan. He is one who's resistant. And even then, by contrast, he shows the nature of God's grace. And on top of that, God shows his grace to Jonah because he's so patient with him. That's God's grace. And it's not just that God's grace initiates. It's not just the long suffering of God's grace. It's the reach of God's grace. Jonah goes down and down and down and down. God's grace is there. God's grace finds him, his presence is with him, and not only with him, but if you remember, what happens on the boat? Jonah starts to talk, and when he talks, a revival happens on the boat. That's God's grace. That's God's grace. God will mightily convert people to himself. People who normally would have never come to him, he changes them. That's God's grace. And then you say, well, does God's grace continue in the book of Jonah? Yeah, very personal to Jonah because he gets thrown off the boat. And then you have the instructive side of God's grace because he's plunged into the water, saved by God. That's a saving grace right there. And then not only saved by God, but in the belly of the fish, he remembers the nature of God's grace. And that's God's grace at work. And then God could have said, you learned your lesson, now die. But he doesn't do that. 
spits him out, vomits him on the shore, and then you learn the graciousness of God's grace. Why? Because God gives him a second chance. That's God's grace. Jonah, you wouldn't have even lived if it wasn't for God's grace. You wouldn't have even survived if it wasn't for God's grace. And now on top of all that, you lived, you were saved, you were delivered, you survived, you get a second chance. So he goes into the city. And again, this is so staggering to think about. Chapter 3, now you see the power of God's grace. You say, how so? Because you go into a city, Jonah does, he doesn't even preach a complete message. You say, why not? He says, in 40 days, Nineveh will, sur- will die. That's not a complete message. <laughs> you go to somebody with the gospel and you only say, hey, you're going to hell. Goodbye. <laughs> no one says you've told them the complete gospel at that point. Even still, even though the messenger is defunct on purpose because he hates these people, God uses him in spite of himself and the whole city is converted. Can you imagine that? You have never seen a revival of that proportion where a million people perhaps are being converted. Amazing to think about. And it happens almost in a single day, as it were. And it's the people who are not only the lowly, but all the way to the king, all converted All those who say, now we repent, that's massive power. That's grace. And so what has happened up to this point is the simple reality. Jonah has seen, one way or another, the lavish work of God's grace worked out. God takes the initiative. God is patient. God converts. God delivers. God teaches. God bears up. God gives a second chance. And then God's power is on display as he converts and delivers an entire city, the capital of a wicked nation. That's the grace of God. And then on top of that, Jonah hasn't just seen it. He's depended on it. Because there have been so many times when he should have been struck down, when he should have been killed, when he should have been executed, when he should have never been given a second chance, yet he is. And so Jonah should have known, this is the work of God's grace, and this is something I need. This is something I depend on. This is something I cannot live without. And you put two and two together. You need this, and I just gave it to somebody else. This is a wonderful thing, and I just gave it to somebody else. And you would expect a guy having experienced all that and seen all that and known all that to say, well, yeah, if it was good for me, it's good for them. And what does he say? Chapter 4. It says in Hebrew, as translated by the LSB correctly, this was a great evil It didn't just displease Jonah. He thought this was evil. And then God asks him a question. Do you have any good reason? You see the contrast? Jonah thought God's grace is evil. That's how twisted he is. After all that he's been through, after all that God has demonstrated, after all that he should have learned, he thinks God has sinned in showing mercy to the Ninevites. That's how twisted he is. He thought God was evil. 
and he thought he was good. He had a good reason to think that. He is so twisted in his sense of grace, he cannot even understand good and evil. That's how wicked he is at this point. Brothers and sisters, just pause here. Sin is never by itself. And when we take grace too lightly, there are other sins involved. Pride, presumption, we'll talk about them. But if you go too far with your sin, it will decay you to the point where you will call good evil and evil good. And Jonah has encroached on that reality. That's how wicked his hatred of the Gentiles is. It has twisted the entire moral compass. So Jonah doesn't get it. After all he's been through, water, earth, sea, fish, one nation, another nation, still doesn't get it. So God has to give him a lesson, a very direct, concentrated, condensed lesson. And that's what we're about to experience right now. Jonah needs a course in the most dramatic, intense way of what it means that God has grace. What grace means. And for those of us that have a tendency, and we all do, by overuse to unto, there are three lessons in chapter 4, verses 5, all the way to the end of the book. Three lessons to be learned about God's grace. Three sections that display very important lessons about God's grace and all of that so that we don't underestimate it. We understand our dependence on it and we understand what it truly demands of us if we really appreciate grace. So let's first of all talk about grace received. Grace received. That's in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. God's going to give grace, and he's going to do so to Jonah in a way that just step by step shows this is all that grace does. So now you're going to have the anatomy, so to speak, of grace. You are going to have the ins and outs of grace, step by step by step, piece by piece by piece. And you have to see every step of the way to appreciate the fullness and the totality of grace. And again, we often underestimate how high grace goes, how thorough it is, and its nature. So let's stop and think about it together. And the first step of grace received, of the nature of grace, of grace played out, of how high it goes, is this. Grace goes to the unworthy. Grace goes to the unworthy. And that's all of verse 5. And there's a lot going on here, so let's not get lost in the trees and forest, forests and trees and such, but it's worth thinking through the details. Look at the first phrase. Then Jonah goes out from the city. You say, well, yeah, that's what happens in the story. No, think about this. Think about this. Because this immediately tells you something about Jonah and what he's doing here. This is an immediate shock if you're reading this in context. For one, you might ask the question in context with verse 4, God is asking Jonah a question. They're having a conversation, at least 
That's what they're supposed to be having. And Jonah has often reacted in ways to tell God what he thinks by not saying anything. For example, chapter one, God says, go. And what does Jonah say? I'll go somewhere else. And that's what, God, that's what Jonah does. His actions always speak louder than words. He barely ever talks back to God. Only rarely does he break silence. And even then in chapter four, it's a disaster. But now, what does he do? Yahweh says, do you have good reason to be angry? And then what does Jonah immediately do? He leaves. Think about this. You're a parent. You have a teenager. And, and, the, and you're talking with your teenager and you're telling them, hey, you've got to do this and this and this. And then they what? Leave. What do you say? Oh, well, that's what teenagers do. I guess it's fine. No problems. Make sure to, you know, take my money and get some lunch. Do you say something like that? Or do you say, hey, I'm talking to you. Can you imagine if God interjected at this point and said, Jonah, I'm talking to you. Those will be the last words Jonah ever heard. (laughs) This tells you something about Jonah. He's defiant against God. He doesn't even care that Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, is talking to him. He just leaves. And that's his disposition to God. You say, well, that's bad. Can it get any worse? Yeah, that's the first phrase of verse 5. We have a bunch more to go through. He's not only bad against God, he's bad against man. Notice what he does. He sits. This is the posture of defiance. Have you ever noticed that stubborn children don't dance around? They just sit because they're resolute. They're fixed. They're immobile. So he sits because he's stubborn. And notice where he sits. He sits to the east of the city. This language of being east of the city is used throughout the Old Testament, not just to know uh, geographical proximity or geographical location, which is true, but it also comes as an idiom to denote when you're against someone. For example, in Genesis 16, verse 12, as well as Genesis 25, verse 18, it talks about how Edom is east of his brothers. Sometimes even in translations, it'll say Edom settled against, or Ishmael settled against his own brothers. Just like when we say the idea of, oh, come to my, be on my, oh, he's my right-hand man. That's a positive way of showing both location as well as elevation in the same way This statement is saying, when you're on the east side of somebody, that means you're sitting there to be against them. You're sitting there to be their opponent. Jonah is a bully. Jonah is a person that is always grumpy against people, particularly the Ninevites. Jonah is a person who is always against them, who has a vendetta against them. He's a bitter man. He holds the grudge, and he sits there in his bitterness, hoping that this city will die. And you say, man, I know those kind of people. Angry all the time, grumpy, likes to yell, doesn't like anybody, and no one likes them. That's Jonah. That's Jonah. He's against God. He's against man. No one on the planet likes him at this point with that. 
And then what, is, what, else does it, what else does he do to make him so unworthy? Notice the next phrase. Then he makes for himself. Oh, he's man-centered. He does his own effort. You say, really? Yes, because notice he'll construct this tent. He'll be in its shade. And then in the next verse, it talks about how God provides him true shade. Here is his own self-righteous way to deal with his own situation. He is a man who does his own thing, autonomous, independent, not trusting, not relying on God whatsoever. I will do it my way. And what does he build? He builds a, a, a tent, some kind of sukkah in Hebrew. If you hear the word sukkah or tent or booth, you think of the feast of what? Booths. And here's the hypocrisy of Jonah. He's a hypocrite this whole time. He's building a booth, a temporary shelter. And in the feast of booths, he would have normally constructed the same thing to celebrate how Israel was in the wilderness for how many years? 40. Why were they there? Because they pleased God? No. Because they were unworthy. And what did God do? He took care of them for all those years and brought them to the promised land. We call that grace. And here he's building a structure to celebrate God's grace and sitting underneath it in order to hate the fact that God shows grace. He's the worst hypocrite of all this whole time. God's own intent He's against God's own heart. He's not just defiant against God. He hates what he loves. How do you know that? Look at the last phrase. He sits there, stubborn, in the shade. He wants his own way. He wants his own kind of shade. This is a man-made shade as opposed to the one that God will later give in verse 6, bestowed by the plant. And what is he waiting there for until he sees what happens against the city? He wants the city to die. Have you noticed in verse 5, the word city is repeated a lot, three times. Jonah went out from the city. He sat on the east side of the city. And now he wants to see what happens against the city. What do you think Jonah is obsessed with? The city. So is God. That's what drives the whole book, isn't it? God says, this city is a great city. This city has people in it. This city should be saved. What does Jonah want? To destroy it. Jonah hates what God loves. Jonah is against everything that God is for. Jonah is so wicked. He is against God. He is against man. He enacts the grossest hypocrisy, and he is stubborn in his resistance against God's purpose. And for such a person, for such a twisted person, for a person who's such a bully, for a person who's such a pugnacious individual who just exacerbates and provokes everybody from God to man, when you meet those kind of people, sometimes you say, well, he'll get what he deserves. He gets grace. That's what he gets. He gets grace. The text, if you read this, of a man who's so insulting to man and God, a man who's such a hypocrite, should make you upset, but then it confronts you in context. Because the entire point of this verse is that that's the one who receives grace. And here's the irony. We get mad at Jonah, and we can preach and wax eloquent about how wicked Jonah is, and he is. And then we think, 
but, and he shouldn't get a thing. And on one hand, you're right. He shouldn't get a thing. But on the other hand, he's the prime target for what? Grace. You cannot do to Jonah what Jonah did to the Ninevites. He thought they were so wicked as well, and they shouldn't get grace. And his hypocrisy is that he's equally wicked, and he would get grace. We cannot treat Jonah the way he treats the Ninevites. You want to know the beauty of God's grace? We're all Jonah in that way. If you think that you're better than him, we are wicked with God and man. We walk out on the conversation with God all the time. We are people who are bitter and hold grudges against other people. We are people who are hypocrites. And we are people, when God has a purpose, we resist. And yet God says, I'll give you grace. Even though if people knew who we really were, they would say, you're going to get what you deserve. That's the beauty of grace. Grace goes to the unworthy. And that's just a beautiful lesson in and of itself. And there's part of me that's tempted to just stop there, but we have the rest of the book of Jonah. You want to know another lesson of God's grace? It's sovereign grace. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. We just said it goes to the unworthy. We haven't even said what it does. Well, here's step two, and thereby what it does. It's sovereign. Yahweh God appoints a plant. Now notice, this is the sovereign work of God. The very word appoint means to designate, to decree, to establish. And for one thing to happen, a bunch of other things have to happen, and so God's sovereignty is at work. This is a verb that's very crucial, as we'll see in the book of Jonah. But what should tie everything together is the fact that this is the same verb where Yahweh appointed a great fish. Same verb. And now God is teaching Jonah a lesson. Do you remember, Jonah? I did act in grace before. I appointed a what? A fish. You didn't call out for the fish. You did not summon the fish. You did not say, here, fishy, fishy, fishy. You did not do any of that. I put the fish there. And I put the plant there. God's grace is always because God initiates it. It is always because he is sovereign in it. It is always because he decrees it. It is always based on him, never upon man. In fact, that's what makes God's grace complete. It's complete. It's, in a sense, full service. Look at the next phrase. I love this. Then the plant came over Jonah. And we might just stop and say, yeah, of course, that's what a plant does. It just rises up. By the way, it's a castor plant. That's the idea of this plant, a bushy, leafy plant. It's a great choice for plant providing shade, and that's what we'll see. But the plant goes over Jonah. This is truly full service if you stop and think about it. Because if I was God, I would put the plant like at least on the other side of the hill and say, go over there, you terrible man. At least get up from sitting down in your stubbornness and walk over. God could do that. Jonah doesn't move. Jonah doesn't have to move at all. Why? Because the plant just comes right over him. It grows. He doesn't have to work it. He doesn't have to till it. He doesn't have to germinate it. He doesn't have to plant it. He doesn't have to do anything with it. It just goes. This is God's sovereignty. It starts. It produces. 
and it produces in a way that Jonah does absolutely nothing. Nothing. He doesn't even move an inch. The plant comes to him. He doesn't have to come to the plant. That's full service. That's the sovereignty of God. That's grace. You say, man, God just coddles this prophet. When you were dead and I was dead and trespassed in sin, God made us alive. What did you do in that process? Nothing. Because that's the nature of grace. Grace has always been God does it all, and you do nothing. You do nothing. And here God is showing Jonah, I'm doing it all. I chose it all. I designated it all. And not only that, God's grace is effective. It's effective. Notice the next phrase. He put this plant over Jonah for it to be a shade on his head. A shade on his head. Now, this is effectiveness to the maximum because notice the sukkah, the the tabernacle, the temporary shelter or booth or tent or whatever that Jonah had constructed must not have been providing the greatest shade. Must not at all. He gives you a shade. And granted, here's what's amazing. It's shade over his head. You say, so what? God could actually make the shade on his arm. And it would still be very, very kind of God to do that. Of course, it wouldn't be that effective. That would be the problem. But God gives the shade over his head. The right kind of coverage in the right kind of place. It's totally effective. And so here you have God's sovereign grace. Here you have his complete full service grace. Here you have his grace that's so effective. And it's good. It's good. That's what you have to know. It's good. Why? Because it delivers Jonah from, and I think in a lot of translations it may say something like uh, his misery or something like that. But the Hebrew has the idea, it delivered him from his evil, his miserable evil, his evil misery. Why? Because that's what grace does. It delivers you from what is evil. Grace is always good. Grace is always what provides the truth. Grace is always what ushers you to your true benefit. And Jonah knows that. He understands that fully. That's why it says in the text, and Jonah was what? Gratefully joyful. He was so glad. He was greatly glad about the plant. We have to realize that grace is what drives everything that is good in your life. Everything that is good, every joy, every ounce of happiness, everything you rejoice over, everything that pleases you, everything that is good for you, that's what grace provides. It always has that one result. It is always joy. It is always gladness. It is always rejoicing. Why? Because that's the nature of grace. It's inherently good. And Jonah is realizing this. Do you remember that Jonah was confused? He called God's grace evil, and he called his own stubbornness against God's grace Good, God is teaching him. Jonah, grace is good. Grace is good. Grace does good things. And what we need to understand is this is how far grace goes. Grace is not just to worthy people, it's to unworthy people. Grace is not just because you were good and you manipulated some things and God assisted you in doing so. It was kind of an augmentation of your own efforts. That's not true. Grace does it all. 
You, it's full service in that way. And grace is effective. It gives you things you've always wanted but never could have on your own. And grace is good. Every good thing you have in life, and there are so many blessings that beyond that which we could count, they're all the product of God's grace. That's how much we are immersed in grace. And Jonah's learning that. He's experienced it firsthand, step by step by step by step. But this is what exposes his hypocrisy because he's so glad, as the text says in verse 6, about a what? About a plant. Out of all the things in life to be happy about, he's happy about a castor oil plant, one of them. That's it. And he's so mad earlier about who? Nineveh. He hates them. He, he views them as wicked, and he views with equal intensity and gladness the plant. Do you see the contrast between the two? He loves a plant more than he loves hundreds of thousands of people. And that's the hypocrisy of Jonah. He doesn't get it. He's starting to get grace, but he doesn't get it because he's just so happy about a single plant. Yeah, is it an act of God's grace? To be sure. But you need to put two and two together, Jonah. And so God is going to teach him a different way. He's taught him by having Jonah receive God's grace. And we've seen the anatomy of grace step by step by step by step by step all the way through. But here's the second point. How about when God removes grace? How about when God removes grace? Sometimes you don't know how much you love something until you lose it, until it's gone. That's sometimes what can happen. And in so doing, what we begin to learn is how much we presume on God's grace, how much we assume, how much we presume that we have God's grace or it should work a certain way or it should be a certain way or it has to work a certain way, and we're not right about that whatsoever. We're not right about that whatsoever. And so in chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, we see God remove it, and it starts to expose how much, how much we assume, how much we presume. And here we go, verse 7. Here's something we assume and presume, that God always has to do it a certain way. But he doesn't. Notice, it says God appointed. Do you see that in the text? What did God do before in verse 6? He Appointed. There in verse 6, it was good. It was a nice plant. Earlier, chapter 1, it says God appointed the great fish. That was good too. So you assume God, when he appoints, he always has to do what? A nice thing to me. He always has to be kind to me. He always has to show me these kinds of things. He always has to be a certain way. Here though, what does God appoint? Verse 7 of chapter 4. He appoints a worm. Not the same thing. And this is the first assumption that we have in God's grace, that the way in his kindness and in his mercy that he treats you and me, that's the way he always has to do it because we're entitled to it. That's not true. He doesn't have to do it that way in that sense. Don't presume on God. He could treat you very differently. He could. He has the right to do that. And that's what God is showing Jonah. And 
It's just this day and night contrast with before. That's why it even talks about when the dawn arises on the next day. Because now you have like a plant arising. Now the sun is arising. And now you have one day. And now you have another day. And these two days are to be contrasted. And so you know in this contrast, you're supposed to compare when grace was given and when grace is taken away. And here is what it looks like he what happens? The worm is sovereignly appointed, and it what? It strikes the plant. It strikes the plant. Here's, here's another thing you assume. When God gives you grace, when he gives you a benefit, he can't take that away. Now, I understand that we often think when you get a gift, normally it doesn't get taken away. Only parents do that to the kids. Have you noticed that? Oh, that's a really cool gift, son. Here, I'll take that. Thank you. And you start playing with that. Maybe that's what we do with our children. But normally when you get a gift, it's there to stay. And here's what God reminds people. I don't have to do that. I can give you a gift. And hypothetically, I can what? I could take it away. The only reason that gift remains with you And the only reason God continues to treat you a certain way is because of his grace. It isn't just, oh, he acted one time in grace, and then he he fired and forgot about it, and now it just runs autonomously. No, it is grace after grace after grace after grace. He gives you a gift, and you keep holding on to it, and it keeps remaining in your possession. Why? Because every second, his grace is sustaining that. Here's our problem. We presume that God's grace is less involved in our lives than it really is. It's so involved. It's what keeps our relationship with God going. It's what keeps the gifts sustained and maintained so that we can experience them. It doesn't have to be that way. God could give it one day and take it away the next. And you cannot say that's not fair. It's a gift. But the reason it stays It's because he keeps lavishing his grace. And it really is his sovereignty. Notice, it strikes the plant, this worm strikes the plant, and the plant withers. It dies. The word for wither is to be dried up. And throughout the book of Jonah, God has been talking about dry things like the dry land earlier on in the book of Jonah. And it demonstrates then that this is God's sovereignty. He struck He had the worm strike the plant. He sovereignly decreed that it would wither. He sovereignly decreed that it would dry up. He's the one who removes grace. Now, at this point, you might say, well, it's still okay. Jonah's no worse for wear. It's what we call net neutral. Jonah just went back as if he never had the grace. So he, he, he's just basically at ground zero. He hasn't lost anything. He hasn't gained anything. It's okay. And that's often how we think about grace. Grace is just the extra. Oh, I need God's grace. Why? Because I got my own strength. But to do this task, I need some help. So I need some grace. And grace is just the extra sauce that gets you to where you need to be. But you supply 50% and God supplies 50%. That's often how we think about it. And that's what Jonah could have been tempted to think about. Well, yeah, I lost the gift, but I'm back to normal. No, this is what normal is without God's grace. You are not zero. You are not neutral. You are negative. Verse 8. It happened as the sun rose. Why? As the sun rose. Because to show you, you deserve wrath, Jonah. 
You deserve punishment, and you deserve punishment that doesn't stop. It's from the moment the sun, what? Rises. You will have no relief. There will not be a second of the day by which you have any respite, rest, or mitigation from what is about to happen. It is perpetual and persistent what happens. God, what does he do? He appoints. It's his sovereignty once again. It's his sovereignty at work once again. The God who can give grace is the God who can take it away. And what does he sovereignly appoint? He appoints an easterly wind. Uh, some people call it a Sirocco. Uh, it, this is a terrible, terrible wind. It's strong and it's hot. I remember being in Israel, and when the weather report said this, it said, stay inside. It said, stay inside. At your own risk, go outside. Don't drive. Don't do anything. Just stay inside. Stay inside. Because this wind, it came from the desert. And it isn't just hot, which is, which is already bad in Israel. When it's already hot, it's, it just increases hot, hot. I mean, this is very bad. It carries a lot of dust particles, so it dries you out. It dehydrates you and fries you at the same time. Uh, I don't know if this was hazing for new Ibex professors, but they just said, hey, you should experience it. Go, go stand out there for 30 minutes. I remember being there, and I thought, this is miserable. And I had water. But it just fills your mouth with sand, so you feel like you have no moisture inside of you, and you're already hot from the hot sun. And then this is just as if there was a heater that was hotter than the already hot sun blowing on you. It was miserable. And so Jonah is frying and dehydrating in this terrible, terrible wind. And who caused it all? God. God says, I can make your life miserable. And I have the right. Without grace... Your life isn't just neutral. It's negative. It's negative. And Jonah, it's personal. Because notice, the sun strikes Jonah's what? Head. There was shade on his head earlier. Now it strikes his head. God says, I will make sure it attacks you personally. It's not just a blanket attack that will kind of indirectly affect Jonah. This is something so that the rays of the sun will be directed against him, bombarded on him, so that he is overwhelmed. You want to know what life is like without grace? It isn't neutral. It is when God's wrath is persistently, powerfully, and personally directed against you. And you will not be able to stand because what happens to Jonah? Next phrase. He what? He faints. This is a little bit of a different word than what happened when Jonah fainted in the, in the water. That's when he lost consciousness. Here, it really does denote fainting because of dehydration. He just can't stand. He, he just wilts over. He just wilts over. And, and he cannot handle it at all. And what does he say? And this illustrates everything. On one hand, Jonah is still Jonah. He rejoices over a plant, even though he should have learned about God's grace. And here in this situation, he, he asks for something, finally. 
Finally, he, he, he's been brought to say something. Finally, he's been brought to realize something. And he asked for something. Notice what it says. With his soul. That's what the idea is. With all of his being, everything within him cries out for a conclusion. Praise God. Finally, something has gotten through this guy and he has convictions about it. And what does he want? To die. Jonah has always wanted to die. Have you noticed that? From the very first chapter of Jonah. He wants to die. He disobeys God. And then when he disobeys God and God doesn't kill him, he gets on a boat, goes down and down and down, and then the storm hits. And then what does he tell the sailors? Throw me in the what? Water. He wants to die. All the time. He just wants to die. Jonah, you haven't changed one bit. Now you've only solidified more how much of a Jonah, a silly little dove, you are. That's you. You just want to die. So on one hand, Jonah hasn't learned a thing. He's been learning things, and, but he hasn't reached the right conclusion. But on the other hand, notice what he says. Death to me is better than what? Life. And on one hand here, you might say, well, Jonah, you're just being such a, like a dramatic kid all over again. What's wrong with you? But on the other hand, he's right. Because a life without grace isn't just a life that's a little more uncomfortable, a little less pleasant. It isn't just a life that's neutral. It's a life that's negative, and it's a life where God's wrath is persistently, powerfully, and personally directed to you. Basically, a life without grace is hell. That's what it is. And it makes no difference at that point whether you live or you die. It's all the same without grace without grace. That's what Jonah realized. That's what he understood. A life without grace is no different than hell because they are the same thing. Sometimes there's this book that we like to tease and we say, oh, your best life now. And people say, yes, it is your best life now, especially if you're an unbeliever. That's true. That's true. Because right now we all have what? Grace. And here's what we've presumed. Here's what we have in our narcissistic attitude presumed. That grace is just the extra. That grace is just what goes on top of what I can already do. And I've already got most of life figured out, but just the things that I can't reach for, then I'll need some grace. No, you don't realize. You don't have grace. You're in the negative. You will be hell on earth. That's what's going to happen to you without grace. That's what takes place when you don't have grace. You say to somebody, how was your day? And they might respond to you, oh, I had a rough day. You survived. You had grace. You had grace. Somebody says, it was the worst day of my life. You made it through. You had what? Grace. If you had a good day, it's all because of what? Grace. You say, well snarkily. What happens if you didn't survive the day? Then you went to be with the Lord, and that's because of what? Grace. What you realize and what I have to realize is for a believer, because of God's grace, you have never not experienced existence without grace, and you never will. You never will. We presume on grace way too much. We think it's just a little bit extra kind of like a seasoning that just makes your life a little bit better. It is your life support system. 
It is what accounts for the reasons why you can have any, any iota of anything good. It is grace. Grace alone. And sometimes it takes God removing it to show you it isn't just all the benefits, which we don't deserve and we couldn't cling to by ourselves anyways. It's everything in your existence depends on grace. That's how dependent on grace we are. Well, this all leads to a conclusion, which is we talked about grace received, which shows you the height of grace and how much it does. We talked about grace removed, which tells you about the dependency we have on grace and how much we presume upon it. But now in verse 9 and following, we need to see grace revealed. Grace revealed. And in seeing grace revealed, we see how full God's grace really is and where it should have always guided us to be. So God asks Jonah a very simple question. Now he has him where he wants him. And he says to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? God asked this question earlier about the city. Jonah didn't really answer. He just left, if you remember. Now he's going to make Jonah give an answer. And now you have a contrast. What God is basically saying to Jonah is, choose, choose. I extend grace to Nineveh, you get mad. I do not extend grace to the plant, you get mad. Which one do you want? Do you want grace extended or do you want grace not extended? Which one do you want to be mad about? You got to choose. So which one? You choose. You tell me. You show me which one it is. Grace extended to Nineveh or grace not extended to a plant? Which one do you want to be angry about? Choose. And what does Jonah say? Just so Jonah, isn't it? He says, I have good reason to be angry unto what? Death. Now, on one hand, this guy is ridiculous. About a plant, and you get that mad that you're willing to die for it? He is a Jonah. But on the other hand, what has he affirmed? What is wrong is a life without grace. What needs to happen is God's grace. He says, forget about the Nineveh thing. I'm more upset about the plant thing. And at that moment, he's made a choice and he's acknowledged grace is good. You need grace. And when grace is removed, that's a disaster. And now God begins to dissect his logic. And now God has him right where he wants him. And he's going to push the argument all the way home. Verse 10, God says, you had pity on a plant. The idea of pity is to look at something with compassion, to look at something and care about it, to look at something and feel bad about it because because you had involvement with it. Now, on one hand, Jonah has that to the plant for sure. He's mad unto death. On the other hand, he's had absolutely no involvement with this plant. Notice what God even describes. You didn't labor over the plant. Jonah is not a gardener. Jonah doesn't do anything. And Jonah didn't even raise the plant up. He didn't labor in the middle of the process. He didn't begin the process. In fact, he has the least amount of contact with this plant possible. Why? Because notice what the last phrase says. It's here one evening and then dies the next. Within 24 hours, it's gone. You have the least possible contact with it. You have invested in it nothing. You have the least possible time with it. Nothing. You have no involvement whatsoever, and yet you feel so strongly. And here's God's point. If, Jonah, you think grace is justified, 
on something so insignificant, something that's around for 24 hours or less, something that you don't care about, something that you didn't raise up, something that you didn't have involvement in. It's so inconsequential. If you think that grace is sufficient and okay there, and God says, and it is, because it is for unworthy people, then how much more, verse 11, and God just levels out five contrasts with what happens before here. Should I not have compassion? Should I not have pity? Same word on Nineveh, the what? The great city. A plant is a plant. A city is a city. And a great city is much greater than a plant. And it has how many people? 120,000 people, yes? More than 120,000. You care about one plant. How about 120,000 or more? And then he says, and those who do not know their right from their left. Now, let's clarify this a little bit. This speaks to not about little children, but those as children who do not have what we call moral authority. You say, what does that mean? Does that mean they're not morally responsible? No, they are morally responsible, but they might not have moral authority in the sense that they're not the head of their own households. They don't make decisions on what the family does or does not do. They're kids. They're underneath their parents' roof, and therefore they still sin and they do things wrong, but they do not carry the same level of responsibility as their parents do. Furthermore, for the sins that God was specifically judging Nineveh for, even as articulated by Nahum, it was for sins like sorcery, human trafficking, and political and spiritual adultery. Babies generally don't engage in those kinds of sins. They do their own sins, to be sure, but they don't engage in those kinds of sins. So God's point is, does he have the right to kill all those children in Nineveh? And the answer is yes, because all have sinned. But if he did so, he's judging a city for specific sins, and these children did not actually do those sins. So doesn't he have the right to have pity on people who are going to be collateral damage? Put it simply this way. Jonah, which is more important? Kids or a plant? Which should have your pity? And even nowadays, we don't have campaigns that say, remember the tots and remember those things in pots. We don't say those kinds of things. We know children are more pitiable than a plant. Likewise, even animals have more value than plants. And this is based on Genesis. That's why God concludes with, and there are many animals. Because we know that animals are living creatures. Even in Genesis, the first chapter, we have God creating all the spaces, which include all things of green seed and such on days one, two, and three. But days four, five, and six, those which fill those spaces are animals and people. Animals and people have greater value than what? A plant. And Jonah knows that. His worldview knows that. And so God says to Jonah, if it's true, and it is true, you're right. You're right, Jonah, that God's grace could have extended to a plant. It could have extended to something so insignificant. Fine. But for that reason, should then it not have extended to something that was bigger with people and not a plant, and greater, and with children, and with animals? And the answer is yes. God's grace in that case isn't just justifiable, it's mandated. 
It's mandated. And to be clear here, that doesn't mean that grace is always going to save everybody. That's not what we're saying. But what we are saying this is that when God chooses to save someone else, no one can stand up against God and say, that's not fair. That's not right. Because if you have been receiving grace in that way, then grace demands that it goes to others. You have to support God 100% and get your eyes off of yourself and onto others because that's the way grace works. That's where it goes. Put it this way. One of the most heinous ways we underestimate grace is this. We already struggle enough to realize in and of ourselves how much we need grace, how much we depend on grace, how much grace does. But even when we understand that, that's where we stop. And then we hear about, oh, missions, and we hear about God's heart for the nations, and we hear about other people's troubles, and we just think, well, I'm okay, so it's okay. You don't understand grace if you have that attitude. You cannot be one who understands grace if you have that attitude. Why? Because if God's grace goes above and beyond for us, then we know God's grace goes above and beyond us. That's what Jonah had to learn. Jonah didn't understand grace. And in his narcissism and in his nationalism, as Israel was, they just wanted to contain grace. But God says, you don't understand it at all. You don't understand how much you depend on it. You don't understand how much it does. And you don't understand how much it then goes beyond you and how then your eyes should be taken off from yourself and looking to others. You want to really be people who understand grace? Then you love when God is gracious to others because that's the way grace always has worked. It's always so lavish. It's always so generous. So brothers and sisters, we underestimate grace. We underestimate it like Jonah because we don't understand all that's in it. And we don't understand that every good thing we have is a result of grace. And we don't, we, we, uh, we don't understand grace like Jonah because we don't understand how thoroughly we depend on it. We just think it's the extra when actually it's necessary for every aspect of our existence. You live, you have a decent week, you have a terrible week, you have any kind of week, grace. And then we don't understand how much is encompassed by it. Because we just focus on ourselves and we just say, oh, we're okay, so it's fine. We're like a speck in the ocean of God's grace and we expect to, to soak up all the grace of God instead of being the speck that is amazed that God's grace goes so far and so wide. We need to get our eyes off of ourselves, onto the God who is so gracious and onto the big things that he has done. We need to renew our minds in grace. But just a lesson here, you might say, well, God ends the, the whole thing with a question. What is, does Jonah actually get it? Does Jonah actually understand? Who else could write the book of Jonah and ridicule Jonah the way Jonah does unless it was Jonah? The book of Jonah is Jonah's repentance because he finally got it. He finally knew how unworthy he was. And he finally understood how God's grace had been working on him this entire time. And he finally understood how much he depended on God's grace. And he finally understood that that was so beautiful. That's why looking at God's grace on other people is not evil, but it's what? It's the best good that there is. And so he wrote a book by God's grace to declare to the people of God, God's grace. 
And all of that is grace. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this work. Oh God, may we always feel our dependence on your grace. May we delight in it. And may every time grace is showered upon others, may we not be indifferent. May we not be those who just shrug it away. May our hearts be deeply moved by it. May our hearts adore it because we love grace. We know what it's done in our lives and we know its nature and it goes beyond us. And so may we be champions of the grace of God and love it and ultimately love you for it because you are the source of that grace. In your name we pray, amen.